Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. A major part of the spirit of the Say It Skillfully podcast is this. It's hard to help someone you don't know. You don't know someone without hearing their story, and you won't hear their story if you don't ask. I'm most inspired by those who are pursuing success on their terms. And today, my guest is my beloved teacher, one of the most studied yoga instructors in the U.S. She's taught since the 1980s. Originally trained in the Shivananda system, her interest in the philosophies of yoga grew, and she studied the Ashtanga and Iyengar traditions, guided by the iconic Sri K. Patabi Joyce and Kevin Gardner, a founder of the New York Iyengar Institute. She's a leader in yoga as a treatment for those with spinal dysfunction and has designed yoga programs specifically for those with spinal asymmetry and back issues. She's a founder and sole director of the premier New York City studio Yoga Union and Yoga Union Back Care and Scoliosis Center. She leads demanding 200-hour and 500-hour teacher training programs and runs the world's only 100-hour back care and scoliosis certification program. Yoga Journal recently produced an on-demand six-part back health program series with her as well. She travels around the globe teaching workshops and master classes, and somehow is making time to be writing her first yoga books. I am honored to welcome the one and only Allison West. Allison, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you so much for that glowing introduction, Molly. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. You have always brought so much bright energy to everything you do, and always with a view towards the positive and fruitful. So it's just, it's delightful to be here. One small thing I wanted to say immediately is that, alas, COVID did bring about the closing of the brick and mortar yoga union, which still continues online. And I still teach and I do workshops and so forth. But as an actual space, it does not exist anymore, which is uh, a great sadness, but also a great reality. Yes, Allison. Well, thank you for your kind words. And you have, you really, you really transform me as a human being. And I, um, I have to say, I, I can't recall exactly how I first got to the studio, but it was such a game changer for me. And so I just have to thank you. I mean, my practice and my sense of me has really been altered thanks to you. So, uh, yeah, before we get to all things yoga, because I uh, I just I really cannot wait for listeners to hear your journey because I'm I know that it may not be the most uh, typical for yoga instructor, not that there ever is anything like that, but I know your past and your interests are very varied. So uh, take us back to growing up and what and who's shaped you. Um, I was born in France of American parents. Uh, my father was uh, working for the government. He was in the Marshall Plan. My mother had graduated from Northwestern and was interested in the Impressionists and wanted to be an artist. They met in Paris. And in fact, she took a job, as all Americans did. They supported themselves. And uh, and they married. And my brothers and I were born in Paris, uh, lived there for a little while. And then we were back in the States briefly before moving to Poland. 
And uh, my father met the writer, Mary McCarthy, who was on tour, and he was responsible for receiving her, taking her around, and they fell in love immediately. And with a um, tremendous fracas, uh, my parents divorced and my father and Mary married, and it was apparently a great scandal, but I was unaware of it as a little girl at the time. I was probably four, five, six when this was all happening, five or six. And um, everybody moved to Paris. My mother moved to Paris, found an apartment. My father and my stepmother moved to Paris. Everybody was in my in Paris, my father at the OECD. And my brothers and I went to school in France for five years and quickly became completely bilingual. By living that life, I grew up with a strong sense of Europe as my home, but also as belonging everywhere. I, I felt I, I, I would travel and feel very much at home there. The counterpart to that was when I came back to the United States for college. I was 17 and I came back and it took me a long time to feel that I belong. And it, I finished college in two and a half years. I skipped my first year. I was in graduate school at the age of 20 at New York University's Institute of Fine Arts where H.W. Janssen had asked me to go to be his student, even though I'd been a Russian major um, uh, before that. And uh, I slowly then began to really feel that that was my home and that New York was my home. And uh, and uh, I began to discover more of my American self, if there is such a thing. And um, that's then I began to feel more complete as a, as a person living in New York City. But um, I, my brothers and I also went to boarding school in England for five years before I came back to the United States and before they went off in their own directions, uh, which is why I have this strange, faded British accent. And that uh, already started me on an independent life away from home without my parents at all. And so I grew up, uh, I would say, as a very independent person and have traveled alone. Uh, a lot and don't feel intimidated by it at all. So I would say that even though my parents had a very hands-off approach to uh, oneself and no advice on education or anything else, the um, positive of that is that I have felt uh, competent to do things and uh, to forge a path or possibly a mistaken path at times, but a path nonetheless that I forged and I traveled uh, through China by myself, for example, and and I took a flight alone for the first time when I was about six and a half from Warsaw to Paris. And then my mother, for example, just to give you an idea, even when I when we were going to, going to boarding school, I was 13, um, would just have me take a taxi to the airport and give me the money for it. I'd get on my own flight and same thing coming home. I'd go to the airport uh, in, in London. And when I got to, to Paris, I would take a taxi and go upstairs and get the money for the taxi. And this, so I just basically grew up without that kind of protective parental environment. And it, it had problems as well as positives. Problems were that I created a carapace around myself, protection in a way. And it took me a long time to learn how to ask for help, to um, just say, I don't know. Uh, it, you know, the English school system, when you learn how to write an essay, and we all wrote essays multiple times a week, which meant that we, we could be effortless writers. It's one of the great, great things about the then English boarding school system and the French system as well, is constant essay writing. 
Um, and we've all heard the firm formula, say what you want to say, say it, and say what you had to say, what your conclusion was. But we weren't educated on how to express our doubts about what we couldn't find out, about what we didn't know. It was always about what we had found out, what we did know, what we could prove. So it took me a long time to understand the value of saying those things. I don't know. Can you help me? Um, I, I would like to expand my understanding. All of these things took me years to come to. And now I'm very at ease with the not knowing of things. And I consider that to be one of the greatest personal developments of my life, is to reach a stage where I can say, I really don't know. But these are the things that I've experienced. So I can share the things I have experienced that I feel some clarity about, but always with the understanding that it is a, uh, every human being is in and a process of evolution, which is, of course, I think, obvious to say, but at the same time, we have to recognize it, because it also means we can change. And if we can change, that also means that there is hope. If we're changing in the right direction, it is very hopeful to recognize that that's possible. And you can even go back into the past, and with that sense of hope and change, maybe change your perception of things that are in the past that did not seem positive, but also see the the formative aspects of those things and how maybe they have helped in certain ways. So that is 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 the wonderful thing about not being certain and also being open to, to the possibility of change. So um, I came back to the United States for, for college, but um, my, my time in Europe, as I said, was formative in the sense that it made me feel as though I belonged more to the planet than to one place. And even as a child, though, I had some experiences that were strange um, and gave me a sense of things beyond the visible and the immediate. Um, I felt that all sorts of things were possible that might not seem rational. And that may also have come from the fact that our stepmother read to us in her stentorian tones the incredibly wonderful four-volume Howard Pyle, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, in which many things uh, uh, occur that are beyond the rational, but that are quite wonderful. So who knows if fairy tales um, had such a deep influence on me. But in any event, I had some experiences of a very direct kind, and um that also kept my mind open to non-verbal, um, non-visible processes. And I think that yoga itself is in addition to the obvious practice of asana. And when I say the word obvious about asana, it is probably not accurate because if you look into poses and uh, into asanas deeply, they're not obvious. They do extraordinary things to the body and mind that are not the least bit obvious. And I, think a great deal more research should be gone into into the physiological changes. This is this is at the, the the palpable level. Physiological changes, bone changes, nervous changes, all of these things. Molly, I know you want to ask me a question. Go ahead. Or say oh, you No, I love this. I'm soaking it in. <laughs> but um but this uh, opening to non-visible processes and also to um, being willing to sense more deeply within myself certain things. I, not only was I barricaded, uh, not only did I have a kind of armor on myself or carapace to, to the outside world, and apparently I was 
somewhat terrifying as a young person because I had this presence, but I was inside close to myself. So it went both ways. And I didn't know how to access um, a, a certain quality of being or qualities of being that I would have rejoiced in having. I'd see them in other people and wonder how it could be so easy for them to be that way. Um, and uh, and so yoga has like rain on granite slowly worn away some of the resistances and allowed me to to find places of greater softness. Um, uh, I am not by nature patient at all, very much like my father um, and uh, perhaps also like my mother. I mean, they perhaps met in some of their flaws as well as their virtues. And so it's, it's the thing about yoga, it's not that you want to repress your feelings at all, but to see them in time. Um, so that you can start to witness and to be a witness. Um, and you can think of it as um, putting a match uh, straight onto dynamite and exploding reactively, or putting a match to a fuse and just watching what might happen and putting the fuse out before it can create the explosion, or just not lighting the fuse, not even seeing the match, and finally just observing before the things happen. And yoga gives one that spaciousness um, in meditation and even in the physical practice. So all of these things are, to me, very real experiences. And um, I feel that they have modified me. A boyfriend who I had, in fact, who with whom I started the... Let, let, I'll go back to my past because I get to Europe again. So I come to New York. I, I major in Russian. I do three hours of ballet at Joffrey every day as well, not knowing you could even do ballet at NYU because in Europe there's no such thing as ballet at university. You go to the conservatory for that. So I had no idea. Um, and then I uh, shifted from Russian uh, and art history. I was doing art history minor to all art history by going to the Institute with um, Jansen, a wonderful, absolutely wonderful man. I studied a lot of Asian art as an undergraduate. Actually, I thought that's what I'd be doing, but I wrote a paper on Donatello, which then made Jansen want me to come and be his student. And I shifted over into 19th uh, 18th and 19th century European sculpture, and most particularly French, in which I eventually specialized, wrote my dissertation on French sculpture, the late 18th, early 19th century, and Cambridge University Press published that as a book greatly edited out of, um, shall we say, a dissertation ease into real uh, writing for a uh, a public, the, the non-dissertation. And uh, I, I love doing that. And while I was doing research in Europe, so I was at the Frick Collection for a few years, having done my my oral exams, but not yet having done my dissertation, what we call an ABD, all but dissertation person. I worked at the Frick Collection for several years, and that that too was a, a an enormous pleasure, a time of extreme uh, happiness and um, interest. And um, but I declined to stay a third year because I just wanted to get on with it. I felt that I'd learned what I could learn while being there. Um, and, and in the meantime, I should perhaps say that I had met a Frenchman who was 40 years older than myself and who fell in love with me upon meeting me. And I started seeing him and eventually we got married. 
um, not because I wanted to get married. I didn't at all. In fact, I told no one, uh, but so that he could stay in the United States and we could stay together. But it was absolutely not my intention to get married, uh, not in any event, not to Francois. But um, but there it was. We were together and um, he was very striking with long white hair and at the French cultural services in New York and and just was a, a creative and in a way flamboyant personality um, just a wonderful person and I'm still friends with his daughter who's a little older than I am I just love her she loves me I love her sons and her grandchildren I mean I have this other family in Paris because of this marriage long ago but it didn't last that long we, we in fact got divorced um, after about seven years of being together and four years of marriage. Uh, but we went on being friends until the day he died, which was three days before my father died. And they were the same age, if that gives you an idea. Um, so <laughs> in any event. All right. By this time, by the time I'm in Europe and doing research on my dissertation, I was single. And I met a German man who had been in the library, the Bibliothèque Nationale, every single day. Uh, and finally we were waiting at the bus stop together. We fell to talking and we became involved and he had scoliosis. And while I was writing my dissertation, I could go to Munich where he also, he would come from Munich to Paris and so forth. So we ended up going to Munich together and I lived with him and we each had carols in the Staatsbibliothek in Munich. And I thought that yoga might be good for his back. I had never done yoga but my husband had, he used to do yoga every morning. But I, in my extreme ignorance, would look at the practice he was doing and think, oh my God, I do so much more in ballet. I'm so much more flexible. I'm so much this, I'm so much that. Why am I going to do this little practice? Not having really been exposed to the uh, extent of what yoga could be. So this, my ignorance, you know, I'd sort of, it's, it's hilarious to look back on, but it's a pity I didn't take advantage of what was in front of me. And um, he also was very interested in Sri Aurobindo and so on. So I feel that when I suggested to Elmar, which was my German uh, boyfriend's name, uh, that we try yoga um, for his back, we tried a few things and we ended up at the Shirananda Institute in Munich. And we started, and then eventually he and I separated, maybe two, it was a long distance relationship to by 1983, I would say, um, uh, this it was over, but I continued doing the yoga. And during that very first time, I did a meditation course in Munich, and my grandmother had just died, and I adored my grandmother, and she adored me, and that was one place in my life where I was secure in the love of that person. And the other person in whose love I was absolutely confident was the woman who took care of us as children in Warsaw, Maria, whom my mother brought out of Poland, who worked for my mother a few years, and then worked for my parents in Paris, my father and stepmother, for, in, in, until my stepmother died and then Maria retired. But I would still go and see her every year at Thanksgiving and, and spend time with her and and... I was absolutely certain of her deep love for me, and I loved her. So there were these two presences in my life, which, uh, which confirmed, uh, you know, that that one could be loved. And then my husband adored me too. So perhaps he was a father substitute figure. Um, and uh, so, in that meditation, and that was all to explain my experience in meditation. While I was meditating, I had this tunnel of light experience 
with my grandmother's voice saying, dear child, which she used to call me, but of course I could have brought that up in myself, but nonetheless, this was the experience I had. Dear child, you will be all right. And that was it. So it was it was a very beautiful experience. And I it 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 I, I it made me feel incredibly happy. But I'm not sure I'm all right even today <laughs> completely. And yet and yet it gave me a sense that um travails though there may be um i would be all right and um i just turned 70 a few weeks ago and here i am i just keep on trucking i keep on doing this thing this yoga that i've been doing now for many decades and it keeps changing inside of me i keep seeing it differently i never teach the same thing twice because every day i i have a different experience of something or see a different connection and um pranayama is also a very rich and deep experience and i for, i want to mention some i mean i've had many lessons from different teachers but the wonderful australian teacher Stephanie Quirk, who spent decades at the Iyengar Institute in Pune as their senior uh, um, yoga therapy person, and who's just a delightful uh, human being, uh, very precise, calm, dry sense of humor, um, and she teaches pranayama absolutely wonderfully. And and uh, even while I was in Maine this summer at my camp up there, I did an online short series with her and just felt that there was no end to what I could learn by listening to her. She has such a vast and deep experience of it. And so this is a, a, a place of where I feel I have so much still to learn and want to learn and uh, will learn. And meditation, of course, is another great area in which I am, um, uh, I would say, less um, developed than I'd like to be and uh, have a great deal to learn as well and move forward in. And I think that one naturally gravitates to the internal practices. I mean, this is the sequence in any event. If you look at the, if, if one wants to think of a progression in the practice, then this, the more subtle practices emerge out of the more ostensible physical practices. But as I said, there are deep internal practices in asana that are extraordinarily subtle. And um, one should never think that it's just about muscle and bone, although muscle and bone are absolutely extraordinary. And I have dissected the human body with Gil Headley, who does these amazing, uh, the, the somonaut, the going in the astronaut of the inner body. And you do the dissection with other people, but you're holding those scalpels, you're cutting the body open you're seeing the miracle of it it's just astonishing but it's still only the surface of things with regard to the energies of yoga and other traditions like the subtlety of prana or chi or however you want to look at it but um so that is i think not a surprising progression of a deepening interest in those other practices and and it's great to cultivate asana when one is young and strong and more flexible and all of these things and it's exciting and fun and you might be showing off or not, but um, so that has been part of that progress. So with Elmar, I started Shivananda Yoga and did my first trainings in Shivananda Yoga, and that what what I just love there was the um, emphasis on 
as much the philosophy of yoga, pranayama, meditation, the chanting of the sutras every morning during the first training. It was just wonderful. We chanted through the whole sutras. And um, and then in my second Shivananda training, then we went on to other texts and we were literally in the forest, like the you know, forest, the the the, the forest practice to, to go out into the forest is one of the practices in yoga. You study in the forest, and we were literally in the forest for our philosophy sessions in the afternoon. And um so that has stayed with me forever and ever. And I very early on when I started, I waited 10 years of, of studying and teaching before I even thought of leading a teacher training myself. And it, I found it very important to teach the sutras and to, and I included other things, but I, I realized that it was just too much. And we had to focus on one text. I chose the sutras, uh, Sri Pantanjali, and, um, and I loved teaching them. I absolutely loved teaching them. And so all that began because of Elmar's scoliosis. As it turns out, my mother has quite severe scoliosis, but she never referred to it. And I never understood it until I really started to look at her back. And it turned out that she had scoliosis all her life, brought on by an arm injury during childbirth and being in a cast for six months with her left arm up and not being able to hold things from underneath. Like you're holding a tray, the right hand could hold the tray from underneath, but her left elbow had to be up and she would hang the tray from her hand. And so this clearly led to her scoliosis. And um, she's never had pain from it. Uh, and it's, it's remarkable. She's 96. Uh, she lives in Switzerland, walks up a hill every day behind her house, is vivid and funny and so forth. And I have come to appreciate her for all her gifts. Um, but she was not very present uh, when I was young. Uh, but I found my way to her, and these are the things that one can do. As I say, one can change the past or start to eliminate the burdens and and just rejoice in what is. And um, I'm very happy that at 70, I can say I still have my mother. So um, yoga started in Munich while I was doing my dissertation, and I came back and I went to teach at Barn in Columbia and then had an NEH to do research on a new project. And um, turned my book and my dissertation into a book. And and it's during that period that I also returned to dance and choreography. I mean, I, so I choreographed and was actually reviewed by Anna Kissel-Goff, but then I had a nervous breakdown. It was exhausting, and I had been prone to depression already. And, um, and I was not able to continue. Uh, it was just the thought of doing another production was so exhausting to me. Uh, even though I had all kinds of ideas, Catherine the Great uh, and Diderot as a choreography and Diderot going to the court of Catherine the Great and how that would manifest on the stage. And what, all, I mean, I had all these ideas and I, and I continued to have visions and artistic visions as well as uh, 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 all these things just keep on happening. But uh, yeah, I think that the plastic nature of sculpture was repositioned in yoga where I see the three-dimensional body as sculpture and um, and can perhaps am plagued with hyperacute sensitivity visually. So it can sometimes subject my students to too much attention um, because I see such small things. Molly is laughing. Uh, if you're listening to this, I can see Molly's face because we're doing this as a Zoom chat. Molly's laughing. Like, yes, that's true. Um, 
but uh, and I understand that. But I always let my students know that I understand that that's something I need to work on, so that they don't think that I'm ignorant of what my flaws might be. And there are many others, but I try to acknowledge them. And um, so, getting back to the path, so New York, Shivananda Yoga. I was introduced to Kevin Gardner, uh, one of the Iyengar, Molly mentioned Kevin. He was a uh, founder of the New York Iyengar Institute, along with Mary Dunn, with whom I also studied. And uh, David Life at Jivamukti introduced me to Kevin Gardner. And once I started studying with Kevin, it was both with a sense of tremendous joy in the discovery of what the Iyengar tradition had to offer in terms of the study of the body, of its alignment, of the, the, the movement of muscle and bone and flesh, sometimes together, sometimes in opposition. And it was so exciting and so depressing because I felt at that point, that was one of those great watershed moments where I felt I knew nothing. And so I was starting all over again. And sometimes I'd try and teach something that Kevin had taught, and I would realize I truly had not embodied the information. I was just trying to take it and teach it, and suddenly realize I, I really needed to spend more time with it before I even tried to transmit it. And um, so I, that was also re-education about process and being and going slowly and trying to learn more before teaching. And I really started to understand the need to, and, and this, any tradition will teach you, you have to master something, and God forbid I should say I've mastered it, but at least it took me 10 years to feel that I could begin to even start training a teacher. I felt I really had to learn so much more. And because you couldn't study another tradition and teach at the Shivananda Center, I resigned. One also taught, by the way, for free. It was a, a service. So one wasn't paid for teaching at the Shivananda Centers. When you were there, it was your service. And um, I was so ignorant that I felt that advanced teaching was teaching advanced poses, which is easily uh, a beginner's mistake. And I, I began to understand through Kevin that intelligent movement, intelligent practice, intelligent adaptations and modifications, the, the ability to slow down, all of these things are what would lead one to a practice that might or might not be called advanced, but certainly wasn't as ignorant as mine was. Um, what I was told I did have during my first teacher training was the ability to inquire and to look at practice and try to understand it. And that is something that has never left me and which is something that does help me both with my practice and with teaching is this um, self-inquiry, explorative quality. So that's when I started doing Iyengar yoga. And I did do, uh, and never stopped. I never stopped studying Iyengar yoga, although... I haven't taken classes in a long time. Uh, uh, opening my own studio in New York almost killed me with the demands that it put upon me. And I also shouldered becoming head of an organization that I essentially helped to found when uh, we went up against the state that tried to license yoga teacher trainings in New York State, but nobody in, 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 uh, in New York State government was in any way qualified to judge the, the the nature of a teacher training. And so um, 
I was able to help um, uh, create this organization. I was voted in as head of it and went to Albany and we got a bill passed and signed into law by Governor Patterson, exempting teacher trainings from state licensing. And it had nothing to do, by the way, with quality of training. It was a, um, a means of putting money into escrow in the event a studio should close and a teacher training canceled and there was no money to refund participants, then that escrow fund would go to helping refund participants. It had absolutely nothing to do really with overseeing what was being taught. And so just FYI, but then I became involved in that, which also took a lot of my time. And in the midst of all of this, I started studying Ashtanga yoga. And um, I loved its its demanding nature and um, its, its athleticism. And I saw, so, because I was doing these different forms, I could see their strengths, but also their uh, the things that they didn't explore as much or didn't allow for as much. And um, in any event, I, I did that for quite a while, but my father died and... Um, in uh, 1999, and a couple of years after that, I felt I had run out of steam um, to, uh, I hadn't yet opened my studio, sorry, at that point, my my, my own big studio on uh, 28th Street, um, but I, I was just feeling too tired to continue it. And so I then uh, continued only with uh, Yengar Yoga and my own explorations within the context of Iyengar Yoga. So um, my interest in back issues arose when I took a class with Bobby Fultz, who had a quite severe scoliosis herself, and noticed my own spinal asymmetry. It's mild, but she noticed it. And I started studying with her and uh, with Elise Miller, uh, the founder, really, of the study of yoga for scoliosis uh, in America and anywhere, really. And uh, and that became the path that I chose to really develop and steep myself in and uh, and still, of course, do. So these these are the threads that weave together um, the threads of yoga in my life or the vast rushing rivers of yoga in my life, in a way. And um, I... The one thing I regret is not having a studio right now where I can teach and also practice with my wonderful rope wall. I have a rope wall of two panels up in Maine, three stations, and I'm preparing an on-demand ropes for the wall as well as the door because I wanted people to understand how vastly accessible it is. It's an enormously accessible thing, and you can do it on a door. You just have to swear that you'll do it on a door that's strong enough and 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 you you have to absolutely understand what you're doing and so in this program i give all sorts of door setups and you know all sorts of modifications and all kinds of work and i also have slings made up in maine my own beautiful orange slings made with four carabiners so you can detach the bottom and do other things and uh it's just it's tremendous fun as well as incredibly restorative and um uh, fruitful and therapeutic terms and so forth. So um, is that my path? There are two other main things other than certain visions that I had as a child. Shall I share one, a very strange experience I had, Molly? I was a child. We were living in Paris 
uh, in the first apartment my mother had there. And I woke up during the night and opened my eyes and surround, found myself surrounded by about seven solemn people looking down at me. And they were wearing clothing, which I then understood later was probably either Central American striped um, ponchos or drapes and bowler hats. I mean, round hats with round rims, uh, not, not an English bowler hat, but very completely round and black. And they were all leaning over me and looking at me. And I, I knew it was very important as though these were ancestors of a spiritual kind. And I was so terrified at the same time that I just closed my eyes and just, just was terrified and couldn't open my eyes again. But in the morning, realized that this thing had happened, that it was extraordinary. I didn't know what it was. And I never told anybody about it then. Now, I have since shared it a very few times, but it was an extraordinary experience. And it was one of those things that also made me feel that there was more than just the visible world. Um, you know, it's a never, it's an experience that never left me. And uh, so um, two other things had an enormous impact. One was dissecting the human body with Gil Headley. It was, it was one of the moments before and after of my experience of our life as a living entity. But I also went to the high Southwest by myself in something like 1990. I drove by myself to the high Southwest, uh, Southern Colorado, Canyonlands, Arches, Bryce. I didn't get to Zion and I didn't get to the Grand Canyon, but I came back through the four corners, you know, through all of that amazing cowboy landscape with tabletop mountains. And I, I felt as, as though I was experiencing myself in geological time, as a geological being, as a certain part of my life, as another entity, another material. Um, back to the basement of time. And that, so my life in a certain way was also before and after that, and before and after um, the dissection. So it was as though outside of myself into rock and inside the human body, th these extraordinary moments of experience of life on earth. And living through the death of several people very dear to me. So there are all of these experiences that have led uh, to where I am now with this. Um, of course, you think about death all the time. It doesn't, it's something I think about every single day. We as Americans tend to be afraid of it, but, uh, but I think there's a growing movement to make death something that we are more familiar with and that we think about with more interest and serenity. Um, because it will come. And so it is, an, I used to do practices of death uh, on Good Friday because it happens to be a day of energy around death, but it was ecumenical. And the practice was to increasingly approach death in oneself and then finally Shavasana being dead. And when it was over, what was so interesting is that nobody wanted to leave. People were so at peace that the, the experience was so profound that we, we all of us wanted just to stay together in this place of, of renouncing of our physical uh, and mental um, 
shapes, uh, having touch base with just pure beingness, I am. So those are all very important things. And as a person who's now finished a seventh decade, uh, you know, I just feel that I see people I know dying and um, it is it is the practice. So that is one of the central practices, but it's ever more meaningful. Thank you, dear Allison. I am in awe of the spirit of you. Your um, undauntedness comes through, your deep introspection, and there's just a purity about you, your ability to articulate through verbal words and all this writing that you came up through in the school systems is very clear. It's... um, Thank you. Thank you. You are the teacher of teachers. I mean, I have always marveled at your um, your precision, um, your ability to help us come into a space, create unity, um, and, and find ourselves, uh, know a little bit more about ourselves. So thank you for that. I, I want to offer a lot of folks on, who are maybe listening don't have much experience with yoga. So if you don't mind humoring us, I'd love to hear a little bit of, you know, if you're just someone just say, Oh, what, what is yoga? I would love to hear you articulate that for our newbies out there listening. Oh God. What is love? What is life? What is yoga? These are, these are similarly expansive questions um, to which there are so many answers. And one of the famous illustrations of the challenge of describing yoga or meditation, or many things, is eight blind persons in a room with an elephant, all touching a part of the elephant and saying, that's what the elephant is, right? So what our mind touches of yoga um, is what it is. And yoga is, it takes many, many forms. Um, there are the, the the yogas of sound, and um, I won't go into it all, but yoga, even in, in, in the system of Patanjali, uh, starts with um, uh, a code of conduct, the yamas and the yamas, uh, truth, contentment, goodness, nonviolence, all of these aspects of yoga, and also eventually in the text, um, kindness to others and so forth. So there are, are, are moral injunctions and restraints um, and, um, and physical practice and um, breathing practices and levels of meditation that take one from focusing to uh, expansive universal awareness and uh, beyond time and conditioning. So that is the modest end of the whole practice. If you see, it, 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 is, it is truly enormous. And at the same time, one can start, one can start in, one must start in where one is, that is that's the fundamental it's to know who one is and also to discover who one is and to start in there and to be willing to explore but it does encompass all those branches and more so um uh chanting um moving energies through the body through this means um these are all part of the um tradition Within all of these things are traditions. It's I, I can say you do asana, and there are so many traditions of poses and 
um, ideas of sequencing and alignment. And just to give you an idea, because I did both practices. In the Ashtanga practice, you do shoulder stand, then you do headstand. But in other traditions, you absolutely do shoulder stand after headstand as the better counterpose because of its um, uh, greater stimulation of the vagus nerve, the rest and repose nerve system, the nerve of the body and so forth. But if you look carefully at Ashtanga, what happens after that shoulder stand headstand sequence is that you sit in Padmasana with your head bowed in Jalantarabandha, which is a locking of the chin, you are stretching your vagus nerve. And this is the pose also of pranayama. Uh, so if you look at it that way, you see that it still is followed by that energetically. So there is that um, confirming of validity of going from the um, nature of headstand to the nature of shoulder stand or neck flexion, you could say, but not an inversion. In any event, different sequencings, different traditions. So even that you would have to explore to know more about and to see what you resonate with because nobody, not everybody is going to resonate with a given tradition. Um, although some traditions can, can definitely help um, other traditions with a greater knowledge of, let's say, sound kinesiology, but uh, the spirit of some traditions could infuse others that might be a little too dry um, in some ways for for people. So you can you can definitely um, see that it is a complex, uh, uh, a very large and complex subject. And uh, so I can't I don't really know what how to say what yoga is um, in its ultimate because. I feel it is like that place from which the traveler cannot return. You know, Hamlet says it uh, so well. Um, and, and right now my mind's gone flank on that traveler um, who, uh, um, who cannot uh, come back from uh, with his knowledge of what lies beyond. But it is the nature of silence to allow us to come together uh, without disrupting each other. If the whole world would just peacefully allow itself to sit in silence for an hour at the same time and just see what might happen. A little creature was flying in front of me. There. What might happen if we could just be silent and what we would hear? We might hear our own angry voice to begin with. Um, but um, silence is, uh, is stillness, awareness. These are the... Um, these are words that we can use to convey something of the ultimate uh, goal is so purposeful, but uh, the ultimate essence of yoga. Um, I think that's what I can say about it. It's just, it is a, a magnificent silence full of love and uh, descending cloud of virtue. This is from the yoga sutras. Uh, I just want to just say, by the way, the third chapter of the Yoga Sutras tends to make people uncomfortable because it's so full of the powers of yoga that include making yourself very small or large or bounding across the earth lightly or making yourself very heavy or so forth. But if you really read that chapter carefully, it is a treatise on the nature of time and the transcendence of time. And, and once one achieves this state of beyond the vibrations of existence and vibrations are very much of time and space um, one has transcended time and 
it is a time of non-judgment. Judgment is predicated on not having a present or a past with which to compare and weigh in an absolute presence beyond time and space. And the third chapter does explain that as that you in your inner practice will reach a place where you can distinguish the passing of moments moments. Such a refined understanding here still conditioned time, mind you. It's still conditioned time, but it is so exalted and you reach then uh, a, a different stage and you really can't talk about it. And that is the central thing. You just, you just, it's just like a frequency that won't fit the radio, right? There are, we, we know that dogs can hear things that we can't uh, smell things. And and we're like that about extraordinarily subtle processes. And then there is the nothingness, the non-vibration, the non-movement. Um, so ultimately, we can speak about yoga as this tran- imminent transcendence. Can we have both an imminence and a transcendence? Paradox should lie at the heart of all of our thinking. It will cultivate a much greater awareness of things if we can hold what we think of as two very different things together in our mind and just let them go to work on our limited self. Spectacular. Uh, I want to be practicing with you like I regularly used to, Allison. Um, I have so many questions. I want one, one I'm going to ask because of the, the ballet, and I just kind of been and just envisioning you in ballet and uh, just a few words on, on you, uh, on the Allison in ballet and the Allison in yoga and just whatever contrasts come to mind for you. Um, first of all, similarities, uh, flexibility and strength made it very easy for me to do things in yoga and therefore deprived me of the understanding of how hard it might be for others. And it took me a long time to understand the enormous advantages that I had come um, to the practice with or with which I had come to the practice. Um, But it isn't always an advantage because it blinded me to some of the more interesting things about the poses because I was experiencing uh, more as... um, uh, a certain kind of strength and um, range of motion. I, I, I'm, I'm not talking about artistic expression through dance, right? And and that actually is something that's taken out of yoga. There's not a lot of um, personal expression in normal yoga classes, but I'm not saying that it's not possible. One can take yoga classes and, and, and make them expressive and so that they can be about that. But it just, so that was not there, but I was also blinded it's like being separated by a common language. Uh, you know, English and American, we are separated in a certain way by a common language, because we, yet we are so different. So we were separated by a common language. And in a certain way, I was separated by a common uh, physicality of range of motion and strength. And, um, and in a way, mo- missed the flowing quality of ballet, but I didn't find it in flow yoga. By the way, in vinyasa, I did not find it so much in that. Um, uh, it was just too close, too different. Yeah. But um, the dissimilarities, well, of course, um, especially when doing a Yangar yoga, is that it was far more static, and ballet was uh, rhythmic and flowing and done on music, and um, 
and uh, Iyengar yoga is done in silence. And I always found that the music that was chosen for flow classes for myself never quite corresponded to what I would love to listen to. So that also meant I was listening to other people's ideas of what constituted the right kind of music for a certain kind of movement. I also found that it was loud rock. It, it stimulated in me energies that really weren't the ones I wanted to work with, although I could have been a very warrior Shakti-like practitioner with a loud rock sound, but it ultimately didn't feel like the sound I wanted to practice with, or it was to me um, very mellowy uh, kind of music that, that, that was quite lovely, some of it truly fantastic. Um, but again, it was dictating the terms of my experience. And um, so I felt ultimately that my practice was best done in silence. Basically, be quiet and pay attention. Well said. Thank you, Alison. We have to wrap. So I'm going to ask you two last questions. And you've done so, so, so much in your career. Do you have a proudest accomplishment to date? Oh, a proudest accomplishment to date? Um well, in the external world, I would say um, it was a great pride to, to for Cambridge to publish my book, which was reviewed in the New York Review of Books and so forth. Also, getting that bill passed into law, it put me on the front page of the New York Times. I'm, I'm one of that small group of people who's been on the front page of the New York Times. Um, I, I, I'm very, very happy uh, of the deepening relationships that I have with people and I'm very happy about the relationship with my mother and internally I would say that that the, the, the inner work that I'm doing is as a quiet internal accomplishment something that I feel is um, fantastic and I have loved 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 helping the students I have been able to help and the feedback I get in relationship to that is incredibly wonderful we are blessed for you. Uh, Allison, what was it like for you to share your journey with us today? Moving. I, I've been thinking about things I haven't thought about in a long time, but like you can hear my voice. It's, it's, it's very moving. Yeah. Well, my uh, moved teacher, you have moved me. I'm grateful for you. You are the teacher of teachers for me. I appreciate you for being a big part of the solution in our world and opening up with your heart and um, helping us all feel safe, seen, and heard, and be our true and very best selves. I hope that I will have a chance to see you in person and hug you in person very, very soon. You take good care. You too, Molly. Thank you so much. Yeah. So amazing, folks. My thought for the week, uh, a tribute from Allison, increase the peace, folks. Let's increase the peace. And a heartfelt appreciation uh, to all the folks behind the scenes who make this show possible, the team at Voice America, and the one and only Eric Patton, who's the driving force for all of our Say It Skillfully website and social media. And my folks, that's a wrap. I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Allison's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. 
Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 